What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. What's up, guys? I'm really excited for today's episode because I got to sit down with one of the leading experts in artificial intelligence, Yashua Bengio. He's one of the people that signed the letter asking for a moratorium to be placed on AI development. And in this episode, we get all into what he's worried about, what he's excited about, where he thinks the future of AI is going. And let me tell you, it is not going where any of us think. And the ability to hear it directly from somebody so well-versed in this area was incredibly enlightening and sobering. AI is a field that is moving so quickly. And if you're not paying attention right now, you will get left behind or possibly even expose yourself to dangers unnecessarily. This is the kind of episode that I always am excited to do because it is so relevant to what's going on right now and got me in front of one of the most important thinkers on the topic. So guys, I hope that you enjoy listening to this episode on AI, the future and the dangers as much as I enjoyed recording it. And if you did, please pass it on, tell other people about it, subscribe to the show, like it, rate, review, do all the things. All right, guys, I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. I want to start with a quote uh, from Ilya Sitskever. He said, uh, for people that don't know, he's a co-founder of OpenAI. Uh, he said, it may be that today's large neural networks are slightly conscious. So I want to pose that question to you. Are computers becoming conscious right now? I think it's a, a question that doesn't make much sense because we don't even have a clear scientific understanding of what conscious means. So based on that, I would say no. Uh, there are lots of properties of our consciousness that are missing. What it means to be conscious, in other words, what sort of computations are going on in our brain when we become conscious of something? Um, and, and, um, you know, how that is, is related to notions, for example, of self or relations to others, um, uh, how thoughts emerge and how they're related to each other, all kinds of clues we have about consciousness, including how it's implemented in, in neural circuits. 
that are completely missing in large language models. All right, as we as we think about um, consciousness from an evolutionary standpoint, we think about its utility. Um, and for for people that haven't heard consciousness defined before, it the I think the easiest way to explain it is it feels like something to be a human. And so the question is, does it feel like something to be a machine? And the most important question, I think, as we think about the dangers of AI and what's coming is, does it matter? Is it additional utility for it to feel like something to be a human or to be a machine? Do you agree that that's going to matter in terms of goal orientation, in terms of, quote unquote, wanting to do something as we think about our AI? You know, is it going to take over? Are we going to be dealing with killer robots? Or am I totally off base with that? My group put out a paper just in the last couple of months, and we have proposed a theory that that may uh, that is anchored in how brains compute. So the theory has to do with the dynamical nature of the brain. In other words, you know, you have a, a 80 billion neurons and their activity is changing over time. The trajectory that your brain goes through as all these neurons change their activity tends to converge towards some configuration when you're becoming conscious. That convergence has mathematical implications that um, would suggest that what we store in our short-term memory are these thoughts that are discrete but compositional. In other words, like think like a short sentence. And it's also something ineffable, which means it's very hard to translate in words. And there are good reasons for that. It's just that uh, it would take a huge number of words to be able to translate the, the that trajectory, that state of your brain, which is a very, very high-dimensional object, into words. It's just impossible essentially so even though we may communicate with language we may have a different interpretation of what this means and especially and in particular a different subjective experience because of our or our life has been different right so we've learned different ways of interpreting the world okay if if consciousness is a byproduct of the feeling i get when my particular brain is honing in on a thought that there is a neural pattern that becomes recognizable. Um, the, the thing I think that becomes important, and the reason that I think this is important as we think about artificial intelligence potentially becoming killer robots, is my big thing with AI has always been, AI has to want something. It has to want an outcome. Not necessarily. Interesting. Let me finish that sentence and then, then we'll pick that apart. But if I'm right and AI has to want something, and that's certainly how humans behave, then I understand the utility of this ineffable feeling that you're talking about that we call consciousness. Because for humans to make a decision and know what direction to go in, we must have emotion. If you selectively damage the region of the brain that controls emotion, people cannot make decisions. They, they can tell you all the rational reasons why they should eat fish instead of beef or beef instead of fish, but they can't then actually decide and do it. So we need that feeling that where this thing is more desirable than that thing. And so my thinking has always been, as it relates to AI, that if AI doesn't want something, it will never be from an emotional standpoint, if it doesn't feel like anything to be a robot, they will never have the final decision-making capability to care enough to take over the world. And so that's where it's like, if it becomes conscious and it suddenly feels like something to be a robot, 
then they're going to be motivated in a direction. That direction could be bad, it could be good, whatever. But they're going to be motivated in a direction now if they are like humans. But if they never become conscious or it never feels like anything, I would think they would be much like they are now where it's like, well, it could be this, it could be that. If you've ever talked to ChatGPT, which of course you have, but that feels like it would sort of be a perpetual state of affairs. What might I be getting wrong? My belief is that you're talking about two things that are actually quite separate as if they were one. So wanting something, having goals, and getting some kind of internal or external reward for achieving those goals is something that we already do in machine learning. You know, reinforcement learning is all based on this. And you don't need subjective experience for that. So these are like really distinct capabilities. Subjective experience is related to thoughts that, that we discussed earlier. We could have machines that have something like thoughts. And potentially, if we implement it similarly to how it is in our brain, they might have subjective experience. It doesn't mean that they need to have goals. I think we can build machines that, that have these capabilities. In other words, they can help us solve problems by telling us how, you know, uh, what is the problem? What is the, a good scientific understanding of what is going on and what might be better solutions? And But they're not trying to achieve anything except be as truthful to the data, what they know, what they have observed. What then is the disaster scenario of something that can pass the Turing test that you're worried enough that you're saying, look, we need to treat this the way that we would treat anything else dangerous, whether that's the uh, environment, whether that's, um, or sorry, climate change, or whether that's nuclear weapons, like to put it on that level, just at the Turing test level, give me, give me the disaster scenario. We already have trolls, right, that are trying to influence people on, on the internet, social media. But they're humans, and you can't scale the number of trolls very easily because it would be too expensive, and maybe people would not want to do it, even if you paid them. But you can scale AI with just more compute power. So you could have AI trolls that... I mean, I think there already exist AI trolls, but they're stupid. It's easy to, you know, interact with them a little bit and you see they're not human. I mean, they're repetitive and and so on. And so now we get to the point where you could have AI trolls that essentially invade our social media, invade or even our email. And in fact, they can do they could do better than that. It could be personalized. So right now. It's a little bit difficult for a human troll to have a good personal understanding of every person that they hit on, to know their history. I mean, it would just take too much time for them to study you and multiply by a billion people. Mm. But an AI system that could just have access to all of the interactions that you've had, the, the videos where you spoke, the texts that's available on the internet, they could know you a lot better, right? So how could that be used? Well, it could be used to hit on the right buttons for you to change your political opinion on something. It could be used to even fool you into thinking you're in a conversation with someone you know. Because they can know you and they can know your friend. And they can impersonate your friend, at least text at a text level. So 
I don't think we have these things, but just we're just like one small step away from having these capabilities. As I was thinking through the same problem, I was thinking, here's a, a terrifying example. Dear parents, AI is going to reach out to you, mimicking your child, asking for money. And so it's not a Nigerian prince anymore. It's mom, uh, I something happened at school, whatever. They talk in their language. They reference things that you you don't think that they could have possibly put out there. But of course, if it's if the AI is good at image recognition and it knows that you guys were on a beach seven years ago, like it could it could replicate things in in the form of a memory that you would never believe that anybody else could possibly know. But we leak, especially kids, leak so much data out into social media that to your point, the AI would be able to have so much context. So at my last company, we got socially engineered and they convinced us to wire 50 grand. And when we went back and looked at the emails back and forth between our uh, finance department and the, the COO, it was so believable. It wrote, like it was obviously a person, but it was writing like they would write to each other in I was just, I was really flabbergasted. And so to think that a human could do that, to your point, it's very hard for them to get the amount of context just to take so much time. But when AI is doing it and it can churn through everything that those two people had ever said to each other ever online, uh, that gets really scary really fast. Okay, so if if we were, if we did this pause, the, the letter that you guys wrote and we paused for six months, and we were going to hold a convention in that time. And all governments were there, Yoshua, and you're up on stage. And your job isn't to tell us what to do, but it's to open the conversation in the right place. Where would you open that conversation? What do you want us focused on? In term- I'm guessing it's like, we need to limit this or something along those lines. Where do you begin? I don't know for sure exactly how these technologies could be used. You and I can like make up things Maybe some are going to be easier than we thought. Some are going to be harder. But there's so much uncertainty about how bad it can turn that we need to be prudent. So prudence here is something that we need to bring in our decision-making individually because we are going to be facing potentially these attacks uh, as, as, as nations at the planet level. Yeah, that that's that's that would be my main message. That that the technology has reached a point where it can be very damaging, and there's too much unknown of how this can happen, when it will happen, and that even the strongest expert, even the people who built the latest systems, can't tell you. It means that we have to get our act together, and mostly is going to come from governments. So. We need those people to get quickly educated, and we need to um, also have scholars, experts, not just AI experts, but like you know, social scientists, legal scholars, um, psychologists, because you know this is the psychology of how this could be used, how to exploit people's weaknesses, um, in order to do the 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 work, the research, also like. What sort of precautions do we need? So there are very simple things that we can do very quickly. For example, um, uh, watermarks and content um, origin display. So watermarks just means that when a company, say like OpenAI, puts out their software, they could easily put out 
um, another software that anybody could run that can test with 99.99% confidence whether uh, a text came from their system or not. So humans wouldn't see the difference. But for a machine that has the right code, it's very easy if 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 their system is instrumented properly. In other words, they kind of sneak in some bits of information that are not, you can't notice. Statistically, there is no difference. But the chances of having this particular sequence of, of, of words would be very, very unlikely and, and would go to zero quickly as the length of the message increases. So watermarks are easy to put in, technically speaking. And they would say, this text comes from this company, this version, whatever. Okay, So a, a piece of software running on your computer would be able to say, oh, by the way, the text that you gave me to read is mm. from this company, blah, blah, blah. And then we need that information to be displayed. Because, of course, you know, being able to detect that it's coming from an AI system is one thing. And But when you have a user interface, it, it should also be mandatory. Like if I... If I'm a so, on a social media in particular, and I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm interfacing, I mean, I'm interacting with some some character out there online, I need to know that that character is not a human. And so that must be displayed. If I get uh, a picture or a video or a text in an email, I need my email, uh, you know, uh, software to tell me, Warning, this is coming from, you know, OpenAI GPT 5.6. Okay, so I'm going to push back with the obvious thing. And I think I won't even have to play devil's advocate here. I, I, maybe I'm not more pessimistic than you, but I am in the, the toothpaste is out of the tube and there's no getting it back in. So I, as, as a way to move all this forward, let's you and I actually debate the reality of all this. So uh, I'm at the governmental meeting. You start saying that. My immediate reaction is, Yoshua, China is going to develop this if we don't. If we put the brakes on this, they're not going to. And this is a winner-take-all scenario. We cannot allow ourselves to get behind. What say you? It's a good, it's a good concern. Um, and that's why we have to get China around the table as well, and, and Russia, and all the countries that may have the capability to to do this. But Russia right now feels hemmed into a corner. They are, Putin is literally intimating that he's going to use nuclear weapons. There's no universe, like we've already tried financial sanctions. That's caused them to, you know, start trading in non-dollar denominations. Uh, they're grouping up with China, Brazil, South Africa, um, they, India, they don't care. Like they're going to use that to their advantage. They're in fact, e even bluffing would be a way smarter play for him to say, no, 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 we're going to keep doing it. Even if he wasn't, even if they're like backwaters, it would be wise of him to say, no. In, in fact, if you don't NATO, if you don't immediately back off, we're going to unleash a troll farm the likes of which you've never seen, we're going to completely destroy democracy in the Western world. Yeah. So first of all, uh, we can protect ourselves without necessarily hampering the research. So I think people misunderstood the letter. It never said stop AI research. It's mostly about these very large systems that can be deployed in the public and then used 
potentially in nefarious ways that we have to be careful with. It's a tiny, tiny sliver of the whole thing that we're doing. Um, second, and, and, and second, in the short term, we do have to protect the public in our societies with things like, like trolls and cyber attacks and, and, and uh, that can exploit AI. Um, third, I, I don't know. I'm not a, no, either. Out of my comfort zone here in terms of diplomacy and then, you know, <laughs> you and me both, but it's fun. Um, but, but my, my guess is that, um, the authoritarian governments are probably as scared of this technology, but for different reasons. So why are they scared? Because the same AI systems that could perturb our democracies could also challenge their power. In other words, imagine AI trolls, you know, being able to defeat the protections of the uh, Chinese firewall and and interacting with people and, you know, putting democratic ideas in their heads in China. Um, well, that would not be something that this government probably would like to see. Um, and in fact, I think China has been the fastest moving on regulation, not for the same reasons as we are. So they are afraid of this. So I think they will come to the table. But again, like it's not my specialty. But at least we, there's a chance that they, they, they might be willing to talk. And remember, um, the nuclear treaties were uh, worked on and signed right in the middle of the Cold War. So, so long as each party recognizes that they might have something worse to lose by not entering those discussions, I think there's a chance we can uh, have a um, you know, co global coordination. And we have to work, even if it's hard, we have to work on it. Yeah, I don't, I'm not so worried about the hard part as I am. What is the natural reaction when you have a very difficult, dangerous thing? And history tells me that we don't come to the table to sign the non-proliferation agreement until we have proliferated so far and we have so many missiles pointed at each other that we finally go, okay, let's not let this go beyond anymore and let's not let it go out to other countries. Like we're perfectly fine being in a stalemate with each other. And I worry that a similar kind of reaction will be had here. But I take your point that this is not an area where either of us are an expert, uh, as much as I find it utterly fascinating to pursue that line of thought. But I, I want to now go back to what would we do to actually begin to limit this stuff? So we need to get people thinking, hey, this is dangerous. That's clear. Um, but then... The watermark thing, to me, works only for people that agree that they're going to do it. But is there a way, so taking the, instead of trying to get people to not do things, how do we build defensive things that even when somebody's trying to hack the system, so I doubt you know this about me, but we're building a video game. And so one of the things you have to think about is this game People will attempt to hack it like that. That is just it goes without saying. So rather than me trying to ask everybody, hey, please don't hack video games like literally it's the dumbest thing ever for the gamers to hack the games It's stupid. You end up ruining the fun. That game will die out and then people will try to invent a whole new game far better 
for everybody to just let's all agree that we're not going to hack it. But it human nature is, is what it is, and that's never going to work. So what they do is they create a, an adversarial approach where it's like, I find the best hackers in the world to come in to try to hack this game, and then I figure out what I would have to do to defeat that so what would an adversarial setup look like in AI when someone's trying not to watermark, but I can still figure out who that came from or it ha- you know, is there a signature or something like that that we could identify? Watermarks are the easy thing and, and uh, I agree they will only be done by the like legit actors. Um, people have already been working on um, machine learning trained to detect text or images that come from other machine learning systems. But these systems are not nearly as good. But yes, we, 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 this is already being developed. And, uh, you know, presumably there's going to be a lot more effort in that direction. And we'll need that as plan B, right? But plan A is already to reduce the, like, right now it's just too easy to, you, you can have an API and just write on top of, uh, chat GPT. Um, so yeah, we should do all these things. Uh, by the way, the kind of adversarial approach that you're talking about is from what I hear and read is also what OpenAI is been doing and, and, and companies like, like Google have been doing. <laughs> they, um, they hire, hire people to try to break their system as much as they can. That's exactly what they're doing. Like, uh, you know, red teams. Um, and, and that's good. Uh, we, we need to continue doing that. Um, but maybe we need to make sure um, the, the the guidelines for doing that are shared across the board, and, and people can. Uh, we ensure all companies have have, have that sort of uh, retesting before it's released to the public, for example. Yeah. Well, I want to yeah. add one thing Please. Please. Um, about because you asked you asked like what can we can we do in the short term at the beginning of your question. So Canada has a law, uh, a bill that is going to pass into law probably in the spring that uh, may be the first one um, um, around the world on on uh, AI. And it has a nice feature, which hopefully other countries will imitate, which is that the law itself is fairly, you know, uh, Simple. It, it it states a number of principles, um, and then it leaves the details of what exactly needs to be enforced to regulation. And the reason this is good is because it's much easier for governments to change regulation. Regulation could be changed like this. Uh, you don't need to go back to the, the parliament. Mm. And so you could have much more adaptive uh, legislative system, including the law and the regulation. And that's going to be super important because the, 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 the nefarious uses that we didn't think about, like they're going to come up and we need to react quickly. If we have to go back to parliament, it's going to take two years. Nah, this is not going to work, right? We need to have a system that's very adaptive in terms of legislation. Yeah, that, that is inevitable. Uh, that brings me back to. We're in this situation because I think people are surprised at how rapidly AI is advancing. What, how did we get caught off guard? Like someone like you has been in this for so long. You knew the rate of change. Um, 
what happened is is it just we we just could not anticipate as we scaled the data up how fast the machine would learn or is there what what is the x we were surprised that the machine did x quickly what was x hassle train tests in other words manipulate language well enough that it can fool us uh, the experience i had of but, sorry what what i'm asking is what allowed it to do that in a way that caught us off guard well, that's interesting, right? It didn't require any new science. It, it, it's essentially scale that did it. Hmm. Do you think consciousness is a function of scale? I, no, right? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, some people think so, but there, there are theories around that. Uh, I think scale is probably useful, but that there are some very specific qualitative features of how we be become conscious that would work even at smaller scales. Um, so yeah, scale is important simply because the job that we're asking these computers to do when they answer questions is computationally very demanding. And this comes from, so I have these, I have a blog post where I talk about the large language models and um, some of their limitations. Um, the, the issue here is that if you take almost any problem in computer science that you can write down formally, like try to optimize this or that, or to find the answer to this and that question, almost all of these questions, the optimal solution is intractable, meaning it would take an exponential amount of computation compared with how big the question is. And so the, it's like, if you want the optimal neural net that can answer questions about that, they can reason properly and so on is exponentially big, which means it's, we can't have it, but the bigger our neural net, the better it approximates this. So there's a sense in which bigger is better because of that, even with problems that look simple. So as an example, to illustrate what I mean, consider the problem of playing the game of Go. The rules of the game are fairly simple. You can write a few lines of code that check the rules and tell you how many points you get and so on. The neural net that can play Go and like really uh, win, like in other words, go by the rules and exploit them in order to figure out how, you know, what is the optimal move and so on. That neural net, the neural nets we have now that play really better than humans, they are huge also. And uh, it's just a property of many computer science problems that are like that. Like the, the knowledge needed to describe the problem, maybe even when the knowledge is small, the size of the machine that's necessary to answer questions, take decisions that are optimal is very big. So I think that's the reason why we need big neural nets. That's why we have a big brain, even if, the amount of knowledge that's involved is small. Now, in addition, the amount of knowledge that's necessary to understand the world around us is also big. So, so, but, but it, I, I think the biggest part of what our brain does is inference. As this is the technical term to mean given knowledge, how do you answer questions properly, like how optimize or take decisions that are, that are good given that knowledge. Okay, is inference the ability to apply a pattern that I saw in the past to a new novel problem? That's, yes, that's part of inference. Um, in classical AI, 
things were very clear between uh, knowledge and inference. So knowledge was people having typed a bunch of rules and facts. And so the knowledge was not learned. It was handcrafted. And inference was, well, you have some uh, search procedure that looks how to combine these pieces of knowledge, these facts and rules, in order to answer a question. And we know that's NP-hard. That's like exponentially hard. And so we use approximations. It's never perfect and so on. But people didn't use neural nets in those days. They used uh, like classical computer science algorithms that try to approximate this, like A star. Now we have neural nets. And neural nets can do this approximate inference. It can be trained to do a really good job at searching for good answers to questions given that piece of knowledge. How does it define good? Is I always assumed that what AI was doing was trying to guess effectively the next letter or the next word. So based on all the patterns that it had seen. So it's like, I've seen questions like this before, and here are the answers that have been rewarded in that a human has told me that it likes this answer better than this answer. And that the the pattern recognition of the machine combined with the human ranking those responses from the machine gives us the way that the AI approaches that question to this answer. Am I missing something? Yeah, I think, I mean, what you're saying makes sense, but there's also a lot of knowledge we have that can be distilled, for example, through how we do it for education, how uh, we do it through books, encyclopedia. So it's it's not all the knowledge we have, but but you can see that. So let me try to put it in this way. Wikipedia is way smaller than your brain. Smaller than my brain. Yeah, smaller is a number of bits that are mm -hmm. needed to encode it, whereas the number of bits that are needed to encode all the synaptic weights in your brain. Got it. Yep, yep. Huge orders of magnitudes greater. Um, so if we were just talking about these kinds of knowledge, which is not everything, obviously, like physical intuitions and so on is another kind that we can't put in Wikipedia. But if we just talk about that kind of knowledge, uh, you would want a very big brain just to be able to answer questions that are consistent with that knowledge. That's, that's, that's what I meant. And okay. right now, that's not the way we train uh, uh, our large language models, by the way. The way we train them is we look at texts that presumably is more or less consistent with that because that's not even the case. There is like people are not truthful and they say all kinds of things, but even if it were, and then by imitating that text, like predicting the next word and so on, uh, we implicitly encapsulate the underlying knowledge, which let's say is Wikipedia. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, so, so again, the, the argument is <clears throat> Scale is important because many problems require doing computation that is intractable if you want to really get the right answer. And so we need these really large neural nets to do a good job of approximating how to compute the answer. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world, but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure, 
please listen up. Within You is a unique blend of ideas, dreams, and passions that no one else possesses. And it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today, and get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com slash impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact impact. Okay. So now I'm going to have to get into the nitty gritty a little bit. This will be really one-on-one for you, but might be, certainly will be instructive for me and hopefully many others to say that a neural network is large. What do we mean? Are we just daisy chaining GPUs, CPUs? Um, are they, so when I think about the brain, the brain is, is broken into these hyper specialized regions. So for instance, vision is comprised of this part of vision tracks motion, and I can selectively damage the motion center of your brain. And now you see everything in a snapshot. Uh, there's uh, things that deal with corners. And so you can selectively damage the part of your brain that that detects corners. There's things that detect straight lines, curved lines. It's It's all these like hyper specific little bits and pieces. And I don't, my understanding of a neural network is it isn't that hyper-specialized. It's a lot of the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Um, help me understand what it means to be a large neural network. Okay, so you're right that the brain <clears throat> seems to have very specialized and modular structure, as in different parts of cortex, especially uh, when when we look at what neurons do in different parts, we see that they t- they they're, they're rather specialized. It's it's uh, not perfectly easy to like identify what this neuron does, but but we we get a sense of what it's about. And it's also true of our large neural nets, but to a lesser extent. So people have been trying to uh, give a name to what. Each particular unit in a large neural net is doing, uh, and we can do that by checking when does it turn on, what kind of input was present. So if we look a lot of the things that make this particular unit on, and we ask humans, so you know what what's the what's the category that this belongs to, then we are often able to. Um, to give a name, and at least that has been done a lot for um, image processing neural nets, because it's easy. Sometimes you can say, "Well, it's this part of the image and this kind of object." For text, I know there's some papers doing that. Um, now, I do think that our brain is is more modular, you know, more with more specialization than what we're currently uh, 
seeing. By the way, Cortex is a uniform architecture, right? Uh, the, the part of your brain that is cortex, which is thought to be the part that's more modern in evolution and really uh, essential for like advanced cognitive abilities, um, is all the same texture, it's all the same kind of units repeated all over the place. And depending on your experience or the kinds of uh, brain accidents that you may have, a different part of cortex will latch on a different job. So. Uh, these are more or less replaceable pieces of hardware, like like our neural nets. Um, there are other pieces in the brain that are not cortex that seem to be much more specialized, like hippocampus and 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 uh, hypothalamus and so on. I, I'm at the edges now. That was certainly useful information, but I, I want to push a little bit farther. So when I'm what I'm trying to wrap my head around is I have a vague understanding of how the brain works, very specialized. I do not understand how we scale a neural network unless you're saying that each, okay, let me, uh, I was going to say each node. And then I realized to me, a node is either a GPU or a CPU, but I actually don't know if that's true. Uh, so first is I would need to understand what is a node inside of a neural net. And then how are the different parts of the neural net programmed to do a specialized thing? We'll start there. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to start with the end. They're not programmed to do a specialized thing. That emerges through learning. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's true of the brain and that's true of neural nets. You don't tell this part of the neural net you'd be responsible for vision and this part you'll be responsible for language. But that happens? Yes. You get specialization that happens. Whoa. Because the collaborate to solve the problem the different pieces that's how learning this like even like a, a a simple neural net from 1990 does that how complex is that underlying code is that really basic but somehow has these incredibly complex emergent properties or is that incredibly sophisticated the first Whoa. It's very simple uh, what the complexity emerges because you you have all of these degrees of freedom and you have a powerful way to train each of the these degrees of freedom, these synaptic weights, so that collectively they optimize what you want, which is like predicting the piece of text that comes next properly. Um, but let me go back to the hardware question. The hardware we use currently to train our artificial neural nets is very different from the brain. They're very, very, very different. Um, we don't know how to build hardware that would be as efficient as the brain in terms of energy um, and total uh, compute that we can squeeze into a few watts, right? And we wish we would. So lots of people are trying to figure out how to build circuits that would be as efficient computationally as the brain. Um, another difference is that the brain has highly decentralized, like at the level of neurons, and we got like 80 billions of them, decentralized memory and computation. The traditional uh, CPU has memory completely separated from compute. And you have bus that transfers information from one to the other to do the computation in the little, uh, the little CPU. Uh, that's very different from how the brain is organized, where Every neuron has a bit of memory and a bit of compute. 
Now, people doing hardware have been working to build chips that would have something that's more decentralized, more like the brain. And there are several companies doing these sort of things. Um, they haven't yet you know, reached a point where it can be a GPU. So a GPU is a kind of hybrid thing where it's really the same CPU pattern, but instead of having one CPU, you've got 5,000. And they each have their little memory, but there's also some shared memory. And it was designed initially for uh, graphics, computer graphics, but it turned out that for many of the kinds of neural nets that we, we wanted to do, it was a pretty good computational architecture, but it has its own limitation. It's, it, it's energy-wise, it's like a huge waste compared to the brain, as I said earlier. And uh, a large part of that waste is because you have all that traffic still between memory, you know, places that contain memory and, and, and places that do compute. So it's much more parallel than the good old CPU, but much less parallel than the brain. Hmm. You're so deep in this, it probably doesn't freak you out as much as it freaks me out. But this is uh, like, as I really start to try to wrap my head around what is happening, this feels deeply mysterious. Now, I've heard um, people say that one of the things is freaking them out. And, and this is people deep, deep, deep in AI. One of the things that they find unnerving is that they don't understand what the neural network is doing. They don't understand how it came up with a given answer. Is How is that possible? It's it's just a fundamental property of systems that learn, um, and that learn not like a set of uh, simple recipes, like you would learn how to do a, 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 a recipe in your in your kitchen, but learn <clears throat> something very complicated that cannot be reduced to a few formulas. Um, like how to walk or how to speak or how to translate or how to go from speech acoustics to sequence of words. These tasks cannot be easily uh, done by traditional programming. Um, but if you put a machine that has a like approximate any function to some degree of precision, so big a big neural net. And you tweak each of the parameters of that machine billions of times, it can learn to do what you want. It can change its... But then you don't really understand how it does it. You understand why it, you know, uh, you, know you understand the code that specifies how this machine computes, but the actual computation it does depends on what it has learned, which is based on lots and lots of experience. So maybe a good analogy is like our own intuition. These machines are like intuition machines. So what I mean is this, you know how to act in different contexts, like for example, how to climb stairs. Well, you can't explain it to a machine. You can't write a program. People have tried. Roboticists have tried. You can't write a program that does that. One reason is it's you know it's all happening in the unconscious, right? It, but but there's a more the reason it's all happening in the unconscious is just too big. It's a, it's a very very complicated program that's running in your brain, 
And the only way that you can acquire that skill that's reasonable is by trial and error and practice and, you know, maybe some of evolutionary, you know, uh, pressure that initializes your weights close to something that's needed to, to learn to walk. Um, so things that we do intuitively that need a lot of practice are exactly like what those machines are learning. They, they, you, they can't explain it. We can't explain our own intuition. Uh, we just know this is how we should do it. Um, and it's knowledge that's so complex that we can't put it in form. We cannot put it in a few formulas or a few sentences. It's just that's that's the nature of things. That that, that there are very complicated things that can't be easily put into verbalizable form, but they can still be discovered, acquired through learning, through practice, through repetition of doing the exercise again and again. I have a grandson who's been learning to walk in the last few months. You know, he was stumbling a lot and and, and going again and again and again. And after a few months, now he's pretty good. He's not like us yet. But it's months and months of practice and getting better gradually through lots and lots of practice. That's how we train those neural nets. And that's why we can't explain why they give this particular answer. They're just like, well, I know this is the answer, but I can't explain to you because it's too complicated to have like 500 billion weights that really are the explanation. Do you want those 500 billion weights? What are you going to do with that? Okay, let's start teasing this apart. So one of the more interesting things in what you just said is going to highlight the difference between what humans do and what machines do and why um, until there is a breakthrough. And I always love saying this stuff in front of experts. So you can strike me down if you think I'm crazy. But I think one of the reasons that a breakthrough is going to be required and that we're not just going to be able to scale our way to artificial general intelligence, and I've completely heard you, that AI passing a Turing test opens up a Pandora's box that is utterly terrifying in terms of its ability to dysregulate the human's ability to function well as a hive herd. But now, the reason I think there's going to need to be a breakthrough is that the reason that your grandson is able to get better over time isn't just the calculus of balance. It's that by doing it, he's building stabilizing muscles. And so his muscles are getting stronger in areas that they didn't need to be strong in when he was crawling. So you get this biological feedback loop of, oh, I see what I'm going to have to do. Part of the repetition isn't just locking it into my brain. Part of the repetition is that I'm going to need to develop the muscle fibers and the strength. Now, how much of that is mediated by the brain and a part of the brain that's subconscious is a huge question and certainly gets to the complexity and your 50 billion parameters and all that. The other part is that his brain is reconfiguring neuronal connections and it's making some of those connections more efficient through a process called myelination. So it's wrapping the fatty tissue to sheathe different connections just like uh, an electrician would do. And now it's it's got this incredible biological feedback loop of, I have a desire, I'm goal-oriented. I want to do this thing, this thing is walk. Now, how the interplay of I want to walk because I see my parents walk, I see grandpa walking, I want to do that thing, or I have 
something in me tells me being over there is better than being here. And so I actually want to locomote to get there and I would figure this out even if I never saw anybody move, which is probably more likely given the babies start crawling and they don't see people crawl. They just have a desire to locomote somewhere. Again, going back to my initial thing about I think machines are going to need to have desire. They have a reason that they want to cross the road if we want to get to human level intelligence. But let's just, let me not fractal too much here. So, okay, we have this biological feedback loop. You're not going to get that with a neural network, no matter how much you scale it up. It doesn't have a biological, it doesn't have the ability to change itself yet. Now, maybe it will, and maybe it could architect a new chip or something once it has the ability to manipulate 3D printers or what have you. But for now, it's stuck with a physical configuration of chips, unlike a human, which can morph from muscles to brain matter. It's stuck with a configuration. But, and this feels like the very interesting thing that we've gotten right so far, which is I have figured out the pieces that I need. So whether that's GPUs or the code or both, but I figured out the pieces that I need for that configuration to learn in a very emergent way. So I set up the pieces and then I give it a thing I want it to learn and a quote unquote reward for doing so. And then a massive amount of emergent behavior comes out of that. But it's always going to be limited in a way that human intelligence is not because of the biological feedback loop. Okay. Now that I've set that stage, do you agree that machines will need something that imitates that biological feedback loop, meaning I need efficiency here that I did not have a moment ago for me to continue to get good at this thing. And that without that, we're sort of stuck at the the highly potentially destructive ability to manipulate language and, and images, but that's it. So actually, current neural nets already do what you say. They, I mean, they don't have the biological framework, but they they do learn from practice and mistakes. But can they recon, re, can they reconfigure their architecture to get better at it? They don't need to change the chips. They just need to change the content of the memory in those chips mm. that contains that says. So why is the biological loop different? Why it's different? Um, it's different because it, you know it, it it has been designed by evolution, whereas we are designing these things using our means. And but but fundamentally, let me let me step back here a little bit to state something important as a kind of a starting point. Bodies are machines. They are biological machines. Cells are machines. They are biological machines. We don't fully understand them. We know it's full of feedback loops. We know a lot. I mean, we know a lot of biology, but we don't understand the full thing. But we know it's just matter interacting and exchanging information. So, yeah, it's just a different kind of machine. Now, the question some people think that, uh, in, in particular, when people were discussing consciousness, because consciousness looks mysterious, some people think that, well, it's got to be something that's based on biology. Otherwise, how could it ever like be in machines? Well, it's I, I disagree completely with that um, because 
It's just it, 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 it's just information processing. Um, now, the kind of information processing going on in our bodies and our brains and so on uh, may have some particular attributes that we still don't have in in our current machines. But the the, the specific hardware just not, needs to have enough power. So, you know, one of the great uh, starting points of computer science, yeah. by people like Turing and von Neumann in, in, in the early days of computing, is the realization with, for example, the Turing machine, that you can decouple the hardware from the software, that um, the same outward-facing behavior can be achieved by just changing the software parts, so long as the hardware is sufficiently complex. And Turing showed that you need very, very simple hardware, and then you can do any computation. That's like computer science 101. So that would suggest that there's no reason why we couldn't in the future build machines that have the same capabilities as we do. Now, we are still, the current systems are missing a bunch of things. Um, you talked, you know, we talked about walking. And why is it that we don't have robots that can walk? I mean, that can walk as well as humans. Have you seen Boston Dynamics? That stuff's freakish. It can parkour. They're not as good as humans by, you know, a big gap. But yeah, I've seen, I've seen them. Um, but, but I think the issue is simply that we have tons more data available to train language models than we have for training robots. It's hard to create the training data for a robot because it's in the physical world. You can't just replicate a million robots and then, but eventually people will do it uh, or be able to do a good enough job with simulation. There's a lot of work going in that direction. But um, yeah, so I, 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 kind of disagree with your conclusion well, so so go back to the the reason that we don't have robots that can walk is because it's just not it's not able to to use some sort of model to see enough okay but there's you're saying the point of that is there's nothing fundamentally missing from the architecture that the ai is running on it's just a modeling problem it, yes, the software part we're we're still far up. For example, you know, one of the clues I mentioned earlier is that the amount of training data that that uh, a large language model needs, like you know, GPTX, uh, compared to what a human needs in terms of amount of text to kind of understand language, is is hugely different. So that tells me we are missing something important. But I don't think it's because we're missing something in the low level hardware of biology. Uh, although I, you know, I'm a big fan of listening to biology and, and, and understanding what brains are doing and so on, so they can serve as inspiration. But I, I don't think it's a hardware problem. Now, hardware is important for efficiency. So, current GPUs are not efficient compared to our brains, and and but but it doesn't mean that in in the next few years we will not be able to to build uh, specialized hardware that will be a thousand times more efficient than current ones. Um, and now there's a much bigger incentive for companies to actually invest in this because the, these AI systems are going to be more and more everywhere. And it's going to become much more profitable to do these investments. Yeah. And proliferation of AI is, is crazy. Uh, before we derail on that though, I want to ask you, so we're comparing 
the way that machines are evolving, the way the AI is evolving to human evolution. Um, I've always thought of evolution as, uh, to use Richard Dawkins' quote, the blind watchmaker. It's not trying to make a watch, but the watch emerges out of um, a, what we could probably refer to as a few simple lines of code. It's like uh, replication and the way that it replicates plus uh, a desire to survive on a long enough time scale. There's not, even you... a, there's not even a need for a desire to survive. It's simply the selection of those who survive. Yeah, interesting. That that's Is that a important distinction? Because I worry, well, actually, I don't worry. This, this would then um, maybe what you're trying to get me to understand about why machines don't need a desire. They just, there needs to be a selection criteria for the one that does the thing better. And that will be enough to boom, to have the, the exponential. Um, and that's the movement. way we train those systems. So the way we train them is that we, if you want, we throw away all the configurations of, of parameters of the neural net that don't work. And we focus more and more on ones that do. That's, that's how training proceeds. It, it, it changes things in small steps, just like evolution does, except evolution does it in parallel with, you know, billions of uh, individuals uh, a, kind of searching the space of genetic configurations that can be, be useful, whereas we're doing it the learning way. So we have like one individual big neural net and we're like making one small change at a time. Um, but it's both our processes of search in a very high dimensional space of computations. You guys know I am super selective when it comes to my diet and I am extremely thoughtful about what I put into my body because you are literally what you eat. You are what you eat. I cannot stress it enough. Your cells are actually made of the things you eat. So make sure that the things you're eating are of the highest quality. And when it comes to high quality, a trustworthy source of animal-based protein, I cannot recommend ButcherBox highly enough. My wife Lisa and I go hard in the paint on ButcherBox Nearly half of my daily calories come from ButcherBox because they go above and beyond to source the highest quality meats and seafood with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. Every month, you can let ButcherBox curate a box of high-quality cuts for you, or you can customize your own box with the exact cuts you want, which is Lisa and I's favorite option. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. Go hard, guys. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level. So eat better this year with the best meat and seafood on the planet delivered directly to your door. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency because if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. 
Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered, just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact okay so let me this was something that i heard you say in an interview at one point i wasn't sure if i was going to ask it but it's now as you were saying that i realize that the entire universe is born of a simple set of physical laws for lack of a better word. And everything that we see from, because I was trying to think, what is the origin of evolution? Because you said that it you, you don't need it to desire. It just needs to get selected. And then I was like, well, what's selecting it? The laws of physics just dictate that certain things will continue to hold their form and function and others will disintegrate. Uh, okay, so then everything is born out of these laws of physics, which we don't fully understand yet. But do you think there will be similar laws of intelligence? that we realize, oh, here are the very simple subset and all of the struggle that we have right now is because much like we don't yet fully understand the laws of physics, but yet we can still build a nuclear bomb, nuclear power, GPS, all of that. So we know enough to do amazing things, but we don't know everything. Do you think we have the same thing happening in intelligence? That's what drove me into the field, the hope that there may be some principles that we can understand as humans we verbally like write about them explain them to each other and so on maybe write math that, that formalizes them that are sufficient to explain our intelligence now obviously for this to work it has to be that it explains how we learn because the content of what we learn the knowledge that has been acquired by evolution and then by our you know in our individual life is too big to be put in a few uh you know lines of math um so whether this is true or not obviously we don't know but everything we have seen with the progress of neural nets in the last few decades suggests that yes because if you look inside these systems like what are the mathematical principles behind those large language models very few it's a, it's it's something you can describe and you can you can you can explain you know when we when i teach uh we explain these to students and so on um, it's not that complicated. It's just like physics is not that complicated. What is complicated is the consequence. So I think there's a good analogy here to also understand uh, the story about intuition and very complicated things that are difficult to put in formula. Uh, the laws of physics um, are very simple. You can write them down. But what's complicated is, well, if you put a huge number of atoms together that obey these laws and you get something very complicated like 
uh, an ice storm. It's very difficult to predict um, because we don't have the computational power to like uh, emulate that. It's it's out of very simple things like simple laws of physics, you get something extremely complicated that comes out that emerges. And it's similar with neural nets. A few simple lines of code, a few simple mathematical equations, plus, you know, basically that at scale and with enough data in this case, and you get something that emerges that's very powerful and very complicated and, and, and not easy to reduce to those initial principles. Okay, so now I wanna I wanna bring back in uh, the idea of alignment of desire. Um, so if, if physics runs off the back of a set of simple rules that does not need to want any outcome, but humans manifest desire. And so we rapidly become the most complicated thing that we know of. Is there, do you think about the problem of alignment? Are AI researchers trying to give the intelligence a level of desire because that would make it more profound? Or is that, am, am I just barking up the wrong tree? I, I keep coming back to AI without desire, mildly potent, AI with desire, uh, dangerous beyond all measure and reason. Um, yes and no. So, yes, with desires and a lot of, and the right, you know, uh, computational and, and uh, kind of the right algorithms could be very potent and very dangerous and potentially very difficult to align to our needs, our values, and so on. And lots of people are working on this. Like, how do we design the algorithms so that even though we give goals to the machines, uh, they will not end up doing things that are against what we want. So that's the alignment problem. But where I disagree with you is that I think we could have AI systems that have no goals, no wants, but are just trained to do good inference, to do to learn as as well as possible of, about the world from the data they have, and to recapitulate to us in what are good answers to the questions we are asking. So let me explain why this would be very useful. In science, typically we do experiments, and then we try to make sense of that data we come up with theories, and there could be multiple theories that are consistent with the data. And so different people may have different opinions on them, or they recognize that all of these theories are possible. And at this point, we can't disambiguate between those theories. Then what they do is, based on the fact that we have these competing theories, they will design another batch of experiments to try to figure out which, you know, to eliminate some of those theories. And then the cycle goes back because more experiments, more data, more analysis, more theories. And, and eventually, we hopefully zoom in on fewer and fewer theories. So this is the experimental process of science. You come up with an understanding of the world. 
but it's not one understanding. There's always some ambiguity. Uh, in some cases, we are very sure, but yeah, uh, a scientist who's honest is never, never sure, except maybe for a mouth, right? So why am I telling you all this? Because that whole process is at the heart of all the progress we've seen in humanity, which would be needed to cure disease, to fight climate change, um, even to understand how society works and people interact with each other better. So all of the things that scientists do to make sense of the world and come up with proposals of things we could do to achieve goals, all of that process could be done by very powerful AI systems that don't have any goals. The, their, their only job is to make sense of the data, represent all the theories that are compatible with it, and suggest the best choice of experiments we should do next in order to get the answers to the questions we want. And that can all be done without any wants, just by obeying some laws of probability uh, that we know that are known, and we just need the computational scale to implement that. Um, and, and algorithms, you know, that people will discover, but, but I think we only have the basis for that. So what I'm trying to say is we can have machines that are extremely powerful, more powerful even than a human brain. Like we have scientists doing that job right now. But but I'm looking, for example, in, in biology, because of the progress of uh, biotech, we are now generating data sets that no human brain can, can visualize, can, can absorb. We, are, uh, we have robots that do experiments, again, in biotechnology, where the number of experiments is in the millions. A human cannot like specify a million different things to try by hand. A machine can. A machine with the right code. And that machine doesn't need to have any wants. It just needs to do Bayesian inference, if you want the, the technical term. Right? It just needs to do Bayesian inference. Um, so, yeah, bottom line is we can have hugely useful machines that are incredibly smart, but have no wants whatsoever. Okay. So I'm, I, it's becoming clearer to me now what our, what our base assumptions are. So your base assumption is that I think AI is already does all the amazing things you want it to do is as dangerous as you could hope it to be uh, as a tool for humans to use. And the thing that I'm focused on is in your scenario, I can just tell it to stop and it will stop. The paperclip problem in my estimation isn't a real problem if I can just tell it stop, stop making paperclips and then it shuts down. Where it becomes a problem is when it's like, no, I want to make paperclips. And I'm going to keep making paperclips and there's nothing you can do to stop me. And I'm going to go around you this way and that way. And I'm not nearly as concerned. I get humans have so many weapons at their disposal. I already know what the world looks like when people have just unbelievably powerful weapons at their disposal. It's manageable. But when the weapon gets to be a million times smarter than I am, and decide what it wants to aim at, and decide when it wants to go off, and nobody gets to tell it otherwise, that's a world that freaks me out. And so when you think about the alignment problem, do you think it's a problem? Like, Because 
in in your world where the AI doesn't have its own wants and desires coming from an emotional place where one thing feels better than the other, and so it has the same type of human desire to go in a given direction that we have, and we know what that's like. People kill for their fucking kids, man. They will do crazy things when the thing feels good enough. So in your world, can't we just tell it to stop? Okay, so... There are two kinds of machines we could build. With the current state of our technology today, there's a choice. One kind of machine is more like us and has wants and goals, and it could decide to do something we did not anticipate. And that could be very dangerous. And people are trying to see how we could program them in a way that would be safer. That's the AI alignment problem. But we have a choice. We don't have to go that route. We could build machines that are not like us. We don't try to make them like humans. We don't give them feelings. We don't give them wants. We See, the thing is, once we understand those principles of intelligence, we can choose how we apply them. If we're wise, we're going to choose a safe path. It, it, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't want anything. It just It's training objective is truth. Okay, so might I suggest when you're, we've gathered all the uh, the nations together, you're about to go on stage. Uh, what I'm going to try to then get you to convince people is that that becomes the most important thing. Do not give AI desire, period. Like inference only, truth only. That's it. That's it. That's it. And actually, that, I think that's the safest route. The problem now, the problem is we need to have all these people around the table and to agree. And honestly, I'm not sure it's going to work. Um, there might be some crazy guy somewhere who says yes, but then goes a different route because he wants to have fun with those machines that look like humans. And he's a moron and doesn't realize how dangerous it is. People are crazy. People have emotions. People, um, are unconscious of the consequences. They think, oh, it's going to be fine. But I, I'm going to make a lot more money than the other guy because I'm going to use this thing that is more like humans. There's going to be a temptation to build systems that are like us. Would it be more powerful if it was more like us? I don't know if they would be, well, they would be more powerful in the sense of being able to act in the world. But that's also more dangerous. Right? Um, act in the world, uh, based on their goals right that that's that's the place which is a slippery slope and or, or maybe we can make progress but even if we make progress with progress with uh the ai alignment techniques are trying to design uh if you want rules and algorithms such that even if they have goals it's going to be safe but but even that is not a sufficient protection because somebody could just decide to not use those guidelines so having algorithms that make AI alignment work is not enough. We have a social problem. We have a, a problem of collective wisdom. How do we change our society so that we avoid somebody doing a catastrophic thing with a very powerful tool that can potentially destroy us all? It's not something for tomorrow. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen in five years. But we are on that path. 
And it's going to take a lot of time for society to adapt and probably reinvent itself deeply for us to find a way to be happy and and safe. When was the last time we had to reinvent ourselves like that? Uh, we, we reinvented ourselves many times over, um, but not like that. Of course, this, this challenge is completely new. But we did. So think about major cultural changes that have happened in the, story, in the history of humanity. Um, uh, think about like religions, um, the invention of nation states, um, you know, uh, invention of central banks and money. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost quoting Harari here. So we've created all kinds of fictions, as he calls them, that drive our society and, and people in, in ways that kind of work, um, but are not adequate for the next challenge. By the way, dealing with this challenge also helps us deal with things like climate change and nuclear dangers and so on, because it's all about how do we coordinate the billions of people on Earth so that we all behave in a way that's not dangerous to the rest. I don't know how to do that, but we need our best minds to start thinking about it. You're you're really starting to to pull together some very interesting threads here. So. Um, you've all know a Harari's idea of a, a collective fiction. I've heard other people refer to it as a useful fiction. Um, that's very interesting. Now, my concern is that that works when people don't understand. So I'll go to the most recent one, central banking. So people don't understand it. And you know, you've got the whole idea of what's it called? The beast from Jekyll Island or something from Jekyll Island where they, they go. And to your point, it was very much a decision. They, a, a cabal of people went and decided we're going to do it like this. And we're going to present it to the world like that. And they did it and Hey, it, it just quote unquote works. Um, there's very few things though, more unnerving than peeling back that and realizing what it actually is. Um, and so I wonder how we present a useful fiction to the world about AI that will get us all unified in a way that will be useful, um, but isn't manipulative. I think that's the essence of what democracy should be, that we rationally accept the collective rules for our individual and collective well-being. So that actually has worked quite well in many countries. Um, but we need to go like one step further in that direction. It can absolutely be truthful and not manipulative. So long as principles of you know justice and fairness and uh, equity and so on are respected, people will go with that. Um, but here, I think we need to we need to go beyond, even beyond the, the, the kind of democratic system. So in a democratic system, the, if it works well, right, we, we don't need to lie to people to get them to accept, to go in, in a particular direction, to, to vote for, you know, a referendum or something for a particular decision. They should be, in fact, as conscious and well-understanding of, of the decisions that they're collectively taking. 
Yeah. Yeah. Getting them, getting everybody on the same page, that that is the tricky part. That's why I, when you first said it in the context of religion, it immediately felt like, ooh, if we could pull that off, if we had a collective narrative about what this meant, it might work. The it's problem not, is- It's not my preferred way of solving the problem, obviously. I would much rather go with like an uber democracy that really goes to these principles uh, even further. Mm. Yeah, that's where I think I begin to, I get it, regulation works and on the countries that come up to the table, regulation is amazing. We should regulate this. I think people, we have to, you have to do something to your point, just because it's hard doesn't mean you should stand still. But at the same time, that's the one where I'm like, yeah, well, uh, all the countries that regulate it does not account for the person like you were talking about that's like, oh, I'm going to go build this thing. They don't recognize second, third order consequences, or more terrifyingly, they do recognize the second and third order consequences, and they do it anyway. Or even like, because that that gets into the the crazy man hypothesis, but having read about Robert Oppenheimer when they were building the bomb and how you just become convinced that, look, the Nazis are building a bomb, we need to do it, we have to do it faster, uh, we'll sort of worry about the bigger problems later down the road, and I very much worry that that's where we are with AI. Okay, I'm going to set that aside for a second because it's terrifying. And I so as I said at the beginning, I worry too. Yeah, I, rightly so. How we solve the problem is a completely different thing. Let me let me ask you: Do you think as AI continues to come on board, and let's say that we it we're thoughtful about it, we've got good regulation in place, will it be like dealing with? a hyper-intelligent human, or will it feel completely alien to us? It depends how we choose to design it. So if we build systems that have wants, that have a personality, that, that, that have emotions, we could, because the more we understand these things from humans, the more we'll be able to do it. Um, personally, I don't think that's the wise choice. And so if we go the other route of systems that are useful to us, but not necessarily acting like humans, um, I think it will be much easier uh, cognitively because we won't be expecting those things to interact with us like, like humans do. Um, they, they will be just assistants, basically, that help us sort out problems and, and find solutions. Yeah, the alien idea i as you were answering that question i had a wave of i don't i don't see how we're gonna loneliness unto itself is going to lead people to play with making it emotional even even as i think about the way that we want to use ai in our in my company it's to generate very realistic characters in a video game and I can just see that to make them more and more realistic, you're going to want them. You can mimic emotion for sure. And if we pass regulations, that's probably where we stop is you create things that mimic emotion, but don't actually have them. But to create something that is um, that is more realistic, we will. So I want to go back to Go for a second. So in Go, they said that the it was like playing a, an alien. It just, it made moves that were so different. So given that now already you have people saying that it comes at something so counterintuitive that it feels completely foreign. You don't think that even without wants and desires that it's going to feel just... No, just I think it's completely different. The reason it 
it it it looks foreign to uh, current players. Might be the same as the current way of playing Go uh, at, at the master level. I might look foreign to somebody a hundred years ago because we've made progress in our understanding of how to play well and and the strategies we use now may look very surprising to somebody a hundred years ago. So it's just that these machines have now trained on so much, so many games that they're like you know hundred years into the future if you want in the evolution of go if if we had let things uh, go. So they discovered basically it's like like science, right? Looks like magic until you understand it. So if if uh, if if somebody from a hundred years ago comes today and looks at our cell phones, it's going to look like magic. It's going to look very unintuitive. What? How could that possibly be, right? And we are just used to that. And so I, yeah, I I don't think it's uh, because there's something fundamentally different. I mean, there are fundamental differences, but but that is just being. Uh, Systems that are more competent because they've been trained on more data and trained longer and focusing on this particular problem in case of Go. Evolution is one of the big themes that has come out today. If people want to keep up, Yoshua, with you and the ever-evolving science that is AI, where should they go? Well, I have a website. It's easy to find. Uh, and a blog where I, I write some of my ideas. And of course, I also write a lot of uh, scientific papers. Uh, my group does. Mila, the institute that I founded uh, with a couple of universities here in Montreal, uh, has about a thousand AI researchers uh, working on many of these problems, but also uh, thinking hard about the responsible AI aspect and, 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 and these questions. Uh, and there are many people around the world who are thinking hard about this, and it, as it should. If you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish, and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me, I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number, dot com slash impact. Check it out. What's up, guys? If there's something going on with your body that you just can't quite figure out what it's coming from, 
I'm going to bet that the problem has something to do with your gut health. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everybody's body is different, and that's why our sponsor, Viome, uses an at-home gut intelligence test to analyze your microbiome. Then they provide you with a personalized pre- and probiotic formula that can help restore balance to your body. They also recommend what foods you should eat and which ones you shouldn't eat based on your test results. I've had the founder of Viome, Naveen Jain, on the show several times, and he always has incredible updates about the science linking your microbiome to the rest of your health. And as you guys know, with everything that Lisa went through, we know firsthand that your gut health, if you fix that, you're going to solve so many other problems in your life. Go to tryviome.com slash impact and use code impact to get 20% off your first three months and free shipping. All right, that's T-R-Y-V-I-O-M-E.com slash impact with the code impact for 20% off your first three months and free shipping.